Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. Today is a little bit of a different episode, as well as kind of coming up. We're going to do, we're going to start to release what we call these orthopedic in-training exam, or OITE, uh, review series, and hopefully this helps prepare people for their uh, exams, as well as kind of just get people some general orthopedic knowledge. Um, so... If you have not already, please go and enter your info, click in our description and sign up for the newsletter so you get updates on new things that may be coming out. Again, if you know somebody that is uh, interested in sponsoring some episodes, we are now opening ourselves up to sponsors for the show. So without further ado, we hope you all enjoy this episode on trauma. We'll talk a little bit about damage control, orthopedics, early appropriate care, and just do a little introduction. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. All right, hello everybody and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. I am Dr. Cole, but I am accompanied here by by a special co-host that you all will learn to hear and learn to get to know his voice a bunch. Um, Doc, why don't you just uh, why don't you just introduce yourself? You know what your name is, uh, you know kind of where you're from, and you know your plans, and then we'll we'll get into this. Uh, yeah. So thanks for having me. I'm uh, Spencer Woolwine. I uh, am a chief here at UCSF Fresno out in California. And uh, excited to be done in a couple of months here, but uh, going to fellowship at uh, Emory down in Atlanta for uh, musculoskeletal oncology. And uh, just, yeah, excited to be kind of a part of this process and um, kind of just given the, the pointers that I've learned over the last five years in regards to the OITE and, and give any insight and uh, tips that I can. Yeah, this is um, this will be like, you know, a little different. And we're going to try to do like an OIT review series and go through like trauma, you know, hopefully the other, you know, subspecialties, foot and ankle, hand, et cetera, and try to hit on all the high yield points. But um, I, I'm actually, I went to, a, I did med school in Atlanta, actually. I went to Morehouse School of Medicine, which is down the street from, from Emory. What, uh, what made you choose oncology? Just, just curious. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, going into orthopedics, I was kind of that just traditional applicant, the the guy who played sports and I saw myself doing ACLs and Tommy Johns and all of that. But on all three of my away rotations, I just coincidentally got put on the tumor service. And mm. so before residency even started, I, I did three, essentially three months of, uh, I mean, just sarcoma resections and hemipelvectomies and curatages and all this stuff. And I, I had no idea that it was even a subspecialty of ortho until that time. And really ever since then, I just kind of, I like the big surgeries. I like the uh, kind of team-based approach with the uh, tumor boards and being in contact with the uh, oncologists and, and everyone else from the team. So I uh, kind of, never look back after those uh, away rotations that's pretty cool you know i did i did some aways too but never once has been on an oncology service so i think it's you know super interesting that you had three in a row you know away rotations oncology services 
And um, that's pretty cool, man. I, I think that I heard they have a pretty good program over at Emory for oncology as well. So congrats to you and congrats for making it through or, you know, a month away, a month or two away from making it through all the fire and getting to your next you know, <laughs> yeah. stage, man. So congrats. Well, thank you. And uh, yeah, I'm hoping I'm hoping this uh, this kind of review series can um, will be helpful for those that are listening. The main goal is, again, to kind of review over some high yield OIT topics. If anybody is listening and they hear something that they believe is wrong, please let us know. You can email us at uh, nailedithortho at gmail.com and let us know that, man, we messed that up bad or, hey, we're, you guys are doing awesome. Keep it up. And um, so let's transition, man. So I think today we can just go ahead and jump into it. We're going to talk a little bit about trauma. We're kind of just go over the basics of trauma, um, just some kind of general principles and it's kind of like the common stuff. Sound good? Yep. All right, cool. Well, all right, so let's just start off. So Spencer, so, you know, what does the primary assessment of a, of a polytrauma patient consist of, you know, when you see these patients down to ED? Yeah, you know, I mean, I've been fortunate enough here in Fresno that we have such a major trauma centers that this has kind of become kind of second nature for all of us here. So, I mean, we have a, we have an excellent just general surgery trauma team that, that helps us out along the way. But a lot of this just kind of follows those general uh, principles that we learned even way back in med school. So like making sure that their uh, airway is patent, are they able to talk? Are they, did they show up intubated from the field? Are they, um, obtunded right now. So should they be intubated now, uh, making sure that they have their uh, C-spine stabilized? Um, uh, and then along with the airway, I mean, are they breathing? Do they have any chest injury? Do you see, uh, once you kind of cut off all their clothes, do you see any flail chest? Do you see any open wounds? Um, uh, I mean, I know that not of us, uh, not a lot of us carry stethoscopes, but uh, relying on the <laughs> ER and uh general yeah. surgeons to, to kind of help out with the diagnosis of whether there's a, a pneumothorax or we're doing all the stuff that we even learn, like the making sure that the trachea is midline, that it's not shifting right. inside for like a tension pneumo or something. And, uh, and then some of the stuff that we're a little bit more familiar with. So, I mean, checking uh, distal pulses in all four extremities, making sure that the circulation is good. And if you don't feel a pulse, then you're just kind of checking up more proximally in that extremity to see where the uh, uh, kind of blockage could be happening. Um, uh, what sort of like disability do they have at this time? Do you see uh, any uh, open wounds, open fractures? Uh, is there neuro exam concerning for a, a spinal injury? And really what's their level of consciousness? Are they able to answer questions or are they not? And then finally, uh, exposure. You want to uh, basically kind of strip them all down, make sure you're not missing anything. But at the same time, these, I mean, they're trauma patients, so they're most likely hemorrhaging out from somewhere, whether that's internally or externally. So you want to keep them warm. You want to uh, keep them uh, resuscitated. And we're just following kind of the ACLS and ATLS protocols. So that kind of brings me into uh, like fluid resuscitation. And uh, so Dr. Cole, like, um, what are your thoughts on like fluid resuscitation and, and uh, what do you think is kind of the next step there? Yeah, no, I think you gave a great summary of like the, you know, pretty much what we all know, the ATLS, the AB, ABCDEs, airways, breathing, circulation, disability, exposure, and those that kind of ATLS protocol that, you know, 
show has been shown to improve outcome and decrease errors. But you know, when we're looking at the you know fluid resuscitation, I was you know you always seeing the questions that when they come in, you know if they're you know hypotensive or whatever they are, you want to kind of start you know two large bore catheters, you know eighteen gauge needles, or I've seen some some people put in fourteen gauge. But pretty much you want to get IV access and you want to start them off with some fluid. So you know first thing you may do is start them off with two liters of some type of fluids, normal saline or lactated ringers, and you know, within fluid resuscitation, if there's no response after, you know, about two liters of fluid, then, you know, then you kind of go look at to transfusing, you know, plaque red blood cells. Okay. And the, the ratio of plaque red blood cells that they always ask about too, is always a one to one to one ratio of plaque red blood cells, FFPs and platelets. Cause if you just only transfuse uh, red blood cells, you can get a coagulopathy. So, yep. you know, summarize it up, you know, two large work catheters, get IV access, give them fluids. If there's still no response after two fluids, after two liters, start them off with, you know, a transfusion and one to one to one ratio of, of red blood cells, FAPs and platelets. And, you know, since we're talking about massive transfusion, what are some, what are some complications that are, that are commonly seen, not commonly seen, but they can be seen with massive transfusion? Yeah, and uh, one more quick note with these with these patients that they show up with just very flat veins, and and it's really tough to get these uh, large bore catheters in. Um, you can always kind of be the first one to suggest or to do a, an IO line as well in their proximity. Ah. Yeah, so yeah, uh, it's just one of those that I, I've seen several complications from that. They've left one in a little bit too long in a pediatric patient of ours down here, but. Uh, uh, yeah, once it's really just for the initial resuscitation. And then once you're able to get that good IV access or central line in, then make sure that those uh, IO lines uh, come out so that we don't yeah. develop like a compartment syndrome or uh, other complication um, like osteomyelitis or something like that. But yeah, solid point. Yeah, going back to the uh, uh, complications for a massive transfusion, I mean, um, big one hypocalcemia really from the uh, citrate that is a part of the uh, packed red blood cells to help them uh, so that they don't coagulate within the uh, IV bag itself but that citrate can bind to the calcium circulating in our system and and can lead to hypocalcemia that then can lead to I mean uh, cardiac arrhythmias, uh, renal abnormalities, and all that sort of stuff. So making sure that you're not going too far down that path and to, and to help supplement some of that calcium back to the patients. And then you can get a, a dilutional thrombocytopenia, uh, hypothermia, especially if the uh, blood is required very quickly from the blood bank. It's, um, it needs to be really warm to, to body temperature uh, prior to being infused. And, and if uh, too much of these fluids are infused on a quick basis, then hypothermia, uh, hypothermia can set in. And then finally, uh, metabolic alkalosis. And a lot of that is the the physiology behind that. I don't really remember. Off yeah. The top of my head, but I <laughs> like do. Third year of med school. <laughs> that, yeah, it's, it is a, a tested point that you can uh, develop a metabolic alkalosis and then Along with that, you'll have to either readjust vent settings or something like that to get them more acidotic and back to a uh, kind of normal physiology. But uh, then really, I think one of the big 
uh, kind of topics within uh, trauma and the initial evaluation of a patient and really like kind of damage control versus early total care uh, orthopedics is um, how do we make sure that we are adequately resuscitating these patients and, and what sort of levels do we look for or what are we looking for in the serum uh, to make sure that we're resuscitating these patients? Yeah, you always see questions on these and, you know, the, the big thing they always want to, you know, that you want to be on the lookout for the lactate levels or the base deficits. You know, lactate is, uh, you know, it's a metabolic byproduct of anaerobic uh, metabolism. So the more kind of, um, if your cells are more in that anaerobic state, kind of release more lactate. So you want the lactate to be downtrending. So the lactate level less than 2.5 is kind of considered adequate, you know, but that is the main thing is trend to lactate. And if their lactate is increasing or if their lactate is like four and then eight, you know, that is the, you know, they're probably not getting adequate resuscitation. Um, so again, that's the most important thing is lactate. But then there are other things, you know, you kind of want to look at the urine output as well. You want the urine output output to be more than one milliliter per kilogram per hour. Uh, you also want to take a look at their, you, you just want to look at their overall status, right? So what are hemodynamics like? Are they, are their blood pressure, are they hypotensive? Are they 80s over 40s? Or, you know, are they, they have normal, um, do they have normal uh, blood pressures? And then, you know, are they coagulopathic? Op, I, I always mispronounce that. But pretty <laughs> much do they have normal coagulation as well? So, you yeah. know, are they, you know, are they, just like we talked about a little bit earlier, you can, with, there are, um, uh, you know, complications that can be seen when you just transfuse, you know, packed red blood cells and get coagulopathy. So um, on the next thing, so since we're talking about, you know, resuscitation and adequate resuscitation, what are, you know, I guess what, what classes, cause you know, there's many different classes of hemorrhagic shock, but what classes of hemorrhagic shock require blood product administration along with the crystalloids? Um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, I would say I'm, every trauma patient coming in is in some sort of shock. And honestly, any orthopedic resident is in some sort of shock because of just normal dehydration and working on that <laughs> long. But yeah. um, when we're, when we get, I mean, really concerned is uh, when we're starting to enter the uh, class three and class four shock. So that's when we're looking at about uh, 30 to over 40% of uh, blood loss, which is around uh, 1,500 to 2,000 uh, milliliters. And uh, that's when we want to start thinking about uh, transfusing uh, blood products and not just uh, saline versus lactated ringers. Um, and it's really in the class three and four shock where we see them kind of failing to uh, compensate for the blood loss. And uh, that's when, I mean, you see the tachycardia over 120 uh, beats per minute for class three and over 140 beats per minute for class four. Um, you see blood pressure decrease, their urine output is decreasing. And even in class four shock, you may not even have urine output because the kidneys are so hypoperfused. Um, you'll see them in a kind of a acidotic state because their uh, body is really relying on that anaerobic metabolism. And then they're going to be the ones that are 
very irritable, lethargic, um, or just unresponsive in the trauma base. So, I mean, we want to make sure that not only are we kind of transfusing them fluid and blood products in that one to one to one uh, ratio, like we talked about before, but also uh, considering uh, intubation and uh, protecting their airway. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. And I know like some of the big things that I always see on the questions, because I always forget, like, you know, what's the difference between two, three and four. But one thing I always look at is like the heart rate. I know if it's over 120, it's not class two shock. It's probably class three shock. But if it's over 140, it's class four. So one thing I look at is definitely the heart rate. If it's like 130, that's more, at least in the questions that they ask, you know, that's kind of more pointing you towards three versus just like you said, if you're you know, have like over 40% blood loss in your heart rates or in the 150s or anything above 140, that's going to be that class four shock. And, and, and since we're, since we're on it, what is, what is SIRS? Have you, you know, that kind of that systemic inflammatory response system, what is that? And like, what happens and what are some of the things that you may, you know, some of the changes that you may see physiologically? Yeah. So there's, uh, um, really four, uh, kind of components that make up this systemic inflammatory response syndrome. Um, and it's really just a, it's because of this shock or the trauma that they've had, you'll see in their serum an increase in cytokines. I mean, this is more laboratory work, but a lot of that like kind of IL-1, IL-6 uh, that we see in just uh, inflammatory states. And then um, you may see an increase in their like kind of overall like uh, anabolic catabolic hormone levels, but that's really not uh, measured on a uh, kind of real life basis. But the things that we can look for uh, acutely in the hospital setting and on the test are um, heart rate greater than 90, uh, uh, WBC count that's over 12 or under four. Um, We have to be uh, very careful that we're also looking at the uh, low white blood cell counts because that can also indicate that something just bad is going on uh, yeah. with that patient. Uh, a respiratory rate over 20 per minute. And um, really that's, that's just, we're looking out for them because, I mean, if you, if you think about it, it's uh, that number was really designated because uh, if you try and maintain a respiratory rate of like 25 per se, over time, you'll, your diaphragm will start to wear out, your intercostals will start to wear out. And so you'll just fatigue and eventually that respiratory rate's going to drop significantly. It'll become more acidotic. And so um, we want to really protect these patients that are breathing very fast when they get into the trauma bay. And then uh, temperatures under 36 degrees Celsius or over 38 degrees Celsius. And um, so, yeah, we just want to make sure that we're, we're, kind of warming these patients up and, and making sure that uh, they don't become coagulopathic uh, because of hypo or hyperthermia. And um, so, so we've talked about kind of a bunch of this stuff in kind of the general uh, evaluation of a trauma patient. Um, and so it kind of moves us into like, what are the next steps? Like how do we uh, kind of move forward from the initial evaluation into how do we decide on treatment for these patients. And so we've all uh, heard of like damage control orthopedics and uh, Dr. Cole, if you want to kind of go into a little bit of what that means and what that kind of dictates in our initial treatment for these patients, that'd be great. 
Yeah, so I mean, a little bit more about damage control orthopedics. So what that is, it's kind of staging your definitive care of a patient to avoid adding to the overall trauma, right? Because, you know, after you have a traumatic event to the body, you have a surge of inflammatory mediators, just like you're talking about. You have, you know, the increased um, cytokines, uh, uh, those, those uh, hormones complement. And you can have an re inflammatory response system like we were talking about a little bit earlier. You know, these things can lead to SIRS or ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, syndrome. So it's, it's kind of the practice of staging care. So you may, you know, X-fix somebody, you may wash them out and put them in a splint until their, um, their overall body um, function or their, their inflammatory response is decreased. So, you know, mm -hmm. these are some of the things you may always, you know, hear those questions about the polytrauma patient, the patient that comes in with the head bleed, they have the pneumothorax, they have multiple open fractures. And so, you know, they have a big, you know, a, a big uh, surge of inflammatory mediators that's, that's, that's coming out at that point that'll likely, or that can contribute towards, you know, these, these different uh, inflammatory response uh, syndromes. And, so with with that, what are some of the conditions that should be treated in the severely injured trauma patient? Like, you know, we just said, you know, patients come in with head bleeds, you know, pneumothorax, abdominal injuries, and, you know, we they always have, they may have some component of an orthopedic injury. So what are some of the things that should be treated in these patients? Yeah, so how I really went through my last five years of uh, call being down in our trauma bay is it was like really just dealing with emergencies first and then the urgencies and then the kind of other stuff off to the side. So really you want to make sure that you catch open fractures because we know that time to antibiotics is the key. That will always be the key that is on every single OITE yeah. that is on your ABOS that is pimped every single day during rounds yes, so <laughs> making sure that as soon as that patient hits the door they get at least some form of antibiotics we can we can get into the intricacies of uh class one cephalosporins versus advancing it up to like uh whatever else you want to give them but at least some form of antibiotics and then you're looking for uh like compartment syndrome so we are checking we are pushing on every single uh joint long bone, uh, every extremity, making sure that uh, compartments are nice and soft, that they don't have pain with passive motion, um, kind of just those main things that we know about for compartment syndrome. And then um, we're looking at the kind of unstable spine fractures and uh, unreduced dislocations and um, some sort of temporary stabilization. So if, I mean, if they have uh, kind of that hemorrhage into the thigh because of a femur fracture, making sure that we get our traction pin set up and, and get them into traction uh, to help uh, kind of decrease that uh, vacancy for ability to, for blood to pool in the thigh and help. Yeah. And, they, and even that can help resuscitate a patient just by pulling all of their fractures out to length. Yeah. I always see things in there, you know, they will be like, bunch of injuries and they'll list like a whole, whole bunch of orthopedic injuries like oh they have a closed humeral shaft open tibia open femur and it's like what should you do you know should you go in and nail the uh, nail the humerus you should probably just you know probably put in like a coaptation splint or something for the meantime yeah. 
versus X fixing, just like you were just saying, X fixing the femur, or X fixing the, the open tibia shaft fracture, for example. Yeah. And um, I mean, you, you did a great overview of the, of the damage control orthopedics, which was kind of the kind of in vogue uh, like 10 years ago. And, and now we're because of a better measures of resuscitation and more aggressively treating these patients when they hit the door of the trauma bay, we start to see this uh, switch or the swing into early appropriate care meaning we're actually thinking critically about these patients and we're and we're treating them appropriately to help out their overall inflammatory response so um, go into a little bit of what this early appropriate care is and how it differs from damage control orthopedics right so so like we said earlier damage control orthopedics is more staging your definitive care right so you know, you're you're doing stage one, maybe an X fix, and then later on, in a couple of days, you may come back and take off the X fix and uh, insert an intramedullary device to definitively fix that patient's fracture. Versus early appropriate care, this is going to be definitive management of whatever the unstable fracture is. So this may be an unstable pelvis fracture, acetabulum fracture, hip fracture, you know, femoral shaft uh, fractures or spine fractures. And these are things that occur within within 36 hours from when, you know from when they arrive, and this is you know you want to make sure that the patients have been equ- uh, adequately resuscitated first. So you look at some of the things that we spoke about a little bit earlier. So you want to see if there's any uh, a base excess. So you want to look at the pH. You know you, know, you want their pH to be greater than 7.25. Uh, you want their lactate to be you know less than four. Um, I'm sorry, base excess lessen. The, the actual number is 25.5 millimoles per liter. Um, lactate less than four, pH less than 7.25. And those numbers themselves were based on a study out of Journal of uh, Orthopedic Trauma in 2013. Name of the study is Timing of Orthopedic Surgery in Multiple Trauma Patients Development of a Protocol for Early Appropriate Care for those that want to read a little bit more about early appropriate care. But, you know, just the things that early appropriate care, it leads to fewer ICU stays, um, fewer ICU days staying, um, shorter hospital stay, shorter time to surgery, less cost, as well as fewer complications. So this is kind of that 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 switch or that, that shift from what you were talking about a little bit earlier from damage control orthopedics to early appropriate care and, de- and, and definitively treating these fractures, you know, nailing them or plating them or whatever it may be. Yep. Now we hope you all enjoyed this first episode going over kind of just some intro to trauma, some damage control orthopedics, some early appropriate care. If this is your first time listening, please hit that subscribe button and please share this with a colleague or a friend if you know any other residents or any other people that are interested in learning more about orthopedics. And uh, we will release episodes multiple times during the week. And uh, so... We hope you all enjoy this and have learned something. If you have any feedback or things that you thought we got wrong, please feel free to email us at nailedithortho at gmail.com. Until next time.